So I'm tricking you a little bit. I, we, we have Acts scripture journals. Uh, we have Acts graphics, I think, up on the screen. Uh, we have Acts on our handouts. We're actually finishing the book of Luke today. But you'll see the connection. You'll see the connection. Because really, Acts is Luke part two. So if you've read Acts, if you've read the beginning of Acts, you, you see that Luke is writing again. He doesn't say sincerely Luke at the end. So how do we know it's Luke? Well, there's a lot of different ways and you can tell from the stories of who's in the crowd and then what did Paul write earlier. But we know the two books are connected because in both books, they both start with him writing to Theophilus. So they're addressed to the same person. And he says in Acts chapter one, he says, now in the first book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he's talking about the book of Luke. Now we've been in the book of Luke since just before Christmas. In Advent, we started looking at the birth of Jesus. What was it like when Jesus was coming? If you back up even further, we've been doing a series called The Story of God since about August or September of last fall. And it's all going to tie together today. So we've got these sermons on our website. And hopefully today I'm going to be able to give you a little bit of a summary of where we've been. Uh, But we're going to be looking today in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. So just a small passage. Last week on Easter, Pastor Al preached a little bit from Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus walked up to these two followers and they didn't know who he was. And it was kind of this awkward interaction. And then he leaves and they go wait, our hearts were burning, right? Like he's teaching us the scriptures and our hearts were kind of on fire. There's no way, right? That was Jesus. And then this, it picks up right here where it says they ran back. Remember Al was telling us it was night. There's no street lights. They're not, you know, they're, they're not in Jerusalem. Well, they ran back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, wait, we just saw Jesus and he was teaching us the scriptures. So in verse 36, it picks up and it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. It doesn't tell us how Jesus gets there. Remember, he's bodily resurrected. He's real flesh. It says he just is standing there. They're talking about, I saw Jesus, and I think I saw Jesus. And, and some of them are going, no, I don't. He's dead. I mean, he's behind the, the stone. He's in the tomb. There's no way you saw Jesus. But then Jesus is standing him, himself. He's standing right there among them. And he said to them, verse 37, he says, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? Remember, they think they see a spirit. So look what Jesus does. See my hands, my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, so to further prove that he's a human being, he says, do you have anything to eat? He says, I'm hungry. Jesus, just death was arrested, Right? He, he defeats death and he goes, you got anything to eat? So they give him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. And now here's where we're gonna be this morning, starting in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Father, as we open your word, we ask that you would open our eyes. Open our minds, just like you do in this passage, to understand the scriptures 
So they're not just getting more information, but Father, so that we're experiencing transformation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I hope if you've been with us at all during the story of God, uh, it's not just been an information transfer of us showing you what's happening in the Bible, but I hope it's been meaningful for you. And, And I couldn't help but think as I was looking at this text this week of going, so what does the story of God mean to you? Like, what is the story of God written over thousands of years on multiple continents by dozens of authors put together in one book? And I say it all the time. It's the only book we choose to get leather bound. Like, I don't look at your bookshelf. I don't have any other leather books. You may. I admire that. That's cool. But I don't have any other leather books, right? So this is important. But what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with my life? How does the story of God impact me. And then once the story of God does impact me, what, what happens when it gets here? Like what, how does it get to me and what does it change about me? <clears throat> but I hope we've done a good job of showing you that you can't keep the story of God at arm's length. That as we're looking at scripture, you, you can't just keep it out here and go, give me the knowledge, give me the information, but I don't, I don't want the story of God to get into my story. I want to keep them separate. So w- what is the story of God and what does it matter for me? Well, Jesus actually gives them an overview of the story of God right here in Luke 24. And he says to them in verse 44, look back with me. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So he's reminding them. He said, I've taught you this so many times. He says, I've been saying that. This is my message when I was with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So law, prophets, Psalms. First of all, that, that's a first century way of saying what we would say Old Testament. It was the Hebrew scriptures, what we now refer to as the Old Testament. And it was in a little bit different of an order, but it was the same books. And he's saying everything that was written about me in there had to be fulfilled. So the, the first point is that the entire story of God is moving toward Jesus. Everything is moving toward Jesus. If you remember the story of God, we said that Jesus is the thread that ties it all together. So if you've ever felt lost in the Bible, join the club, first of all. We've all felt lost in the Bible, right? No one masters this book. But if you've ever felt lost in it, I have. If you've ever wondered, okay, what in the world am I reading right now, right? If you've ever started like a read through the Bible in a year plan, I've tried that. I've tried that so many times, right? You get to like Leviticus and you start going, okay, I'm struggling with the application here, God. Like, can I go read like Ephesians or like something else that I feel like is going to give me some nourishment for my soul? But what is the whole Bible about? Jesus here is saying that it's all about me. It's all about me. The good news is that the whole Bible is moving toward Jesus and Jesus is actually the hero of the Bible. So trace the storyline of the Bible with me for a second. Genesis 1 and 2, everything seems okay. God creates this perfect world. Everything's good. Man is very good. He puts man in the garden. Perfect relationship. Everything goes wrong very quickly, though, by chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve doubt God's word. They try to define life's meaning apart from God. They think they can be autonomous from God. They think they can be independent from God. Sin. Sin is thinking you can do life without God. Sin is thinking you can have meaning. Sin is thinking you can have joy in life apart from God. It's putting anything over and above God. And they did that. And all of a sudden there's this chasm between God and man. So how is the whole Bible about Jesus? Well, as soon as this happens in Genesis 3.15, the whole Bible is about Jesus because in Genesis 3.15, God says to Satan, I'm gonna put enmity between you and the offspring of the woman and you'll, you'll bruise his heel 
but he's gonna crush your head. So right here, Genesis 3.15, we're looking forward to this offspring, this child, this, this man, this person to come that's gonna crush the head of the evil one. He's gonna destroy sin, death, and the devil. So the anticipation is building. And then you get to Abraham and we find out God's promise is gonna actually extend to all nations. All nations are gonna be blessed through this offspring. And then God chooses one family. He says, Abraham, it's gonna be through your family that I'm gonna bring, out, bring this deliverer. But then what do you see? You see Abraham's family continues to sin and Abraham can't have children. So he, he sins against God by trying to have children the wrong way because his wife's not having kids right. So then you keep going through and you get to the Exodus. And God, here God's people are, second book of the Bible, trapped up in slavery. And you're going, deliverer? I mean, we've been in slavery 400 years, older than our nation, been in slavery. And, and the people are wondering, where's the promise? But as the Old Testament continues to unfold, you continue to see that God has a plan, a plan to bless and save all people. He's gonna do it through a deliverer. He's gonna do it through the family of Abraham. The point of the story is that everything's looking forward to, anticipating, hoping for some future deliverer. And he's gonna be a king better than King David because he's gonna rule forever. He's not gonna be like David and sin and then die. He's gonna be a king and he's gonna be king forever. And then the prophets tell us that He's gonna be like a suffering servant. He's gonna die. Isaiah 53 says he's gonna get crushed. And he's not gonna be this handsome, good looking, like you're not gonna look and just go, that's the guy. Like Isaiah 53 says, he, there's nothing that makes us look at him and go, wow, that's great. He's gonna be despised and crushed. So we have this hope of a future king and this hope of a suffering servant. And then we find out in the New Testament, this is actually one person. It's Jesus. So the storyline of the Bible is that Jesus is the hero of it. Now, why is this good news for us? Right? So far, these are just facts, just observing things from the Bible. But why is this good news? Jesus is the hero of the Bible, so you don't have to be. Please don't read scripture only for the purpose of saying, how can I do this? you'd be completely missing God's point. Please don't read Old Testament stories like David and Goliath and go, man, how can I muster up the courage like David? Wasn't even a soldier, man. He put on that and he went out there and fought Goliath. That's a burden that's not yours to bear because the point of David and Goliath is not that you need to be like David, but the point is that Jesus is like David and he goes out and fights a Goliath that all of us were cowering in the back like the rest of the Israelites going, I can't, I'm not fighting him. And then Jesus steps up and goes, I'll, I'll fight him, overcomes David and Goliath. The point of the Bible is that you don't have to try to be the hero. Jesus is the hero. The whole point of the Bible is that you can't. You cannot measure up. If the Bible tells us anything about ourselves, it's that we're incredibly sick with sin. We're incredibly sick with sin. See, the primary problem that the Bible is addressing is not something outside of us. Right? When we come to the Bible and we're looking for rules, we think the, primary, the, the main thing wrong with us, the primary problem is that we just don't know the right thing to do. Or if we come and we're just trying to learn more and get more information about God, we think the primary problem is that we just need right doctrine, right? So sometimes we come to Scripture and we're looking for duty or we're looking for doctrine. And if you're looking for duty, you're going, all right, God, show me, show me something today to do. 
Show me the right example to follow. Give me the right command. Just show me, right? Like we go to the Proverbs and we're like, God, my business is struggling. Give me some business principle here to help fix this financial problem I'm in. God, my marriage is in a hard time. Just give me the verse that I can just kind of sprinkle on the top of my marriage and man, just really turn this thing around and go. The main problem with you is not something outside of you that you can just do better and fix it. The main problem is not even that you get suffering from outside. The main problem is something inside of us. The main problem is that sin has separated us from God. And so the main storyline of the Bible is not that we need to do different or think different. It's not that we need duty or doctrine. It's that we need deliverance. The main story of the Bible is that we need deliverance. So because the main problem is not inside of us, it's outside of us, and we don't need duty, we don't need doctrine, we need deliverance. So how is the whole Bible pointing us to deliverance? It's pointing us all to Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the main character. Jesus is the hero. This is the story of God we've been trying to preach. This is what we've been trying to show you, that the Bible is not just a book of rules, although God is kind enough to show us how to live once he changes our life. But if you go to the Bible first looking for the rules, you're gonna miss the whole point. The whole point is that you could try your best to keep every rule in this book and you're still not making it. The point is that God provides for those who cannot provide for themselves and he does it through the person of Jesus. So this is what Jesus is saying, Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. He says, I've told you this when I was with you, right? Go back and look at the Old Testament. Everything that was written about me had to be fulfilled everything. The whole Bible's about me. I'm the hero. I'm the main character. I'm the one that this whole thing has been looking forward to. And here I am. And then it says in verse 45, this is so important. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures. That answers a lot of questions for me. And I hope it does for you too. How can I spend so much time in God's word and still feel like I don't get it? Or you look sometimes at somebody and you're like, man, they were in church their whole life. And they did what? Man, they went off the deep end. How? I feel like they were in a a good church. I feel like they they knew the Bible. You can know the Bible and not really know the Bible. But we all need Luke 24, 45. We need God to open our minds to understand the scriptures. And so that's my prayer. Every time we preach is, God, you got to open our minds. We can get better information. We can hear great sermons. We can hear great sermons every day for the rest of our lives. My grandparents are in their 80s and they can't really do a whole lot anymore. So guess what? They just sit there and listen to sermons. They listen to Christian radio. They just hear preachers like all day, I think. I'm like, at some point, I don't know, I might get tired of that. And I like preaching. But they, that's, they just love to listen to preaching. You could listen to preaching more than my grandparents who sit at home all day, listen to five sermons a day. You could listen to all that and not really know the point of the scriptures. But are the scriptures a treasure for you? where you're diving into here and you're not just looking for duty. You're not just going, God, give me something to do. I've got to, I've got to have the right rule. I'm missing something. And you're not just looking for doctrine, just looking for doctrine. We're going to find duty and doctrine in God's word, but only in their right order. But we come here and we open it and we go, show me Jesus. Show me Jesus. And it makes me think of the Greeks that came in a story of the in the gospels and they come to the disciples and they, and they weren't quite to Jesus and they just get to his followers and here's what they say, sir, oh, we would like to see Jesus, please. 
sir, we'd like to see Jesus. I've seen some churches that on their platform, they have that quote on the bottom right here. Sir, we would see Jesus today, please. And that's what they came and they told the disciples. And I pray that that's what we would ask as we come to this book. God, help us to see Jesus here. Because without him, doesn't matter if we have the duty, doesn't matter if we have the doctrine, we need a deliverer and Jesus is that deliverer. So the whole story of God, that's background, that's context of what Jesus is teaching. So what does it mean for us? The whole story of God's moving to Jesus, but then in Jesus, the story of God comes to you. So the story of God is not just a story, but because of Jesus, the story of God can become your story. Why? Well, because Jesus is the hero, and and so we don't have to be the hero. Remember, our main problem is not outside of us, it's inside of us. It's not that we're not doing the right thing, it's that we need to be delivered from sin. So let's take a second and talk about sin. What is it? I'm not talking about sins, plural, I'm talking about sin, the disease of our hearts. We're born with a natural bent inward on ourselves. We're born with this bent away from God, where we would choose, I'll start with a, a, a spiritual word and then we'll try to define it we're born with the desire to worship things other than god and you go time i've never sang songs to something other than god okay so let's expand our definition of worship what does worship mean you worship whatever you most love whatever you most cherish whatever you have to have or your life is incomplete, whatever controls your emotions, right? That's what you really worship. Whatever holds the most value in your life. Did you know the word glory really means like weighty, weightiness? So whatever is most glorious to you, whatever's the weightiest thing in your life that has the ability to set you off in anger or make you feel like every other problem in life is small, that's the thing that is holding sway in your life. That's worship. That's idolatry, right? When we think, I, when I was a kid and I heard idolatry, I just, I had in my mind images of people in India and Buddhism and, the how, and, and like literally little Buddhas and stuff. I'd seen them at the nail salon when I went with my mom. So you said idolatry, I'm thinking, okay, nail salon, Buddhas. Well, then you come to find out biblically, idolatry is not just bowing down to a carved image. Idolatry is actually an attitude of our heart where we take some other God and we lift it up above the true God of the Bible and we say, you can save me. You are the one I'm looking for to give me deliverance. You're the one I'm looking for to satisfy me. You're the one I'm looking for to give me joy, peace, pleasure, goodness. That's idolatry. That's sin. Sin is a worship problem. It's a heart problem. So Jesus came so that we can have new life. Jesus came to fix our sin problem. What, what happens when God sees sin? Well, God knows how valuable he really is. God knows the true worth that he deserves to be worshipped. How did we sing that? You're more deserving of every praise we could ever give you? You're more deserving of that. God knows that he's more deserving of every praise. So when people come into his presence and they look him in the face and we say, no, not worshipping you, not honoring you, not glorifying you, it deserves wrath, it deserves judgment. And God says, and you, you've missed the point of life, so you get no life. To, to be cut off from God is to be cut off from the source of life. So, so how did Jesus solve this problem? Jesus stepped in, and, and read with me in verse 46. It's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Christ died, 
to bear the burden that we were meant to bear. He died the death we should have died. We, we've talked about this when we talked about the Lord's Supper. Al talked about it last week. That's what Easter is a celebration of, the death of Christ in our place. But he walked out of the grave on the third day. So he died the death we should have died, but then he came back to life. So when the story of God comes to you, here's what happens. Jesus gives you new life. And that's, that's shown in these two words in verse 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So story of God's all moving to Jesus. Then because of Jesus, the story of God moves to you and Jesus provides this incredible, beautiful salvation for you that you didn't earn, you didn't ask for, you did nothing to achieve on your own. Jesus provides it for you as a free gift. What does that mean for you? Repent and forgiveness. Two very churchy words and we'll just own them this morning. But what does repentance mean? Repentance means to do an about face. You're moving in one direction and to repent is literally to stop and to turn and to move in the other direction. So when you hear the word repentance, don't think like you, you need to repent, right? When you hear the word repentance, think I could not help but be moving this way. I was bent in a direction where I was worshiping idols. I had my back turned to God and, and I was just so self-consumed and self-centered and I was just steeped in sin and I was heading in this direction where I was trying to define the meaning of my life and I was looking for joy and I could not turn off of this path. But Jesus gives me the joy of repenting and turning from that and finding the glorious life that I was meant to live. So repentance is not something you muster up the strength to do. Repentance is a gift from Jesus. You had no choice but to be moving in that direction, but then now Jesus comes and says, hey, can I show you what real life looks like? It doesn't look like that. C.S. Lewis says, we, we can't imagine what God offers us, and here's how he puts it. We're so content making mud pies in the slums that we cannot imagine a vacation at the sea. That's us in our sin, making mud pies in the slums, thinking this is it, man, we're living the life. And C.S. Lewis says, when we're really offered vacation at the sea, Jesus gives us the freedom to repent and turn from the mud pies and turn to vacation at the sea. He gives us the freedom to turn from our sin and death and turn to true life and joy in God. So that's repentance. Well, what's forgiveness? That God freely wipes away the record of our sin. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, it's how far he removes our sin from us. I mean, how beautiful of a picture is that? How far are those from each other? Well, those are directions, so eternally, eternally, infinitely separate. God takes your sin, everything you deserved, and he says, no, I'm not counting that against you. God in Christ gives you new life. So I promise we're gonna get to Luke and look forward to Acts. But it was important to set the stage on where we've come in the story of God, that it's all pointing to Jesus, and then because of Jesus, he changes your life, and he gives you deliverance, and he's the hero of the story so that you can repent, have a new direction in life, you can experience forgiveness. But now here we are in this place in the story of God where Jesus died, Jesus resurrected, and he's about to ascend and go back to heaven. Just put yourself in the disciples' place. They may be wondering, okay, so is this over? I mean, in Acts 1, we're gonna talk next week about how they go, so are you like restoring the kingdom? I mean, <laughs> what's next? Like you, you came and you did it, we followed you, you're just leaving or, what, you know, is the story over? And that's the place we find ourselves here at the end of Luke. 
And Jesus is saying this, the scriptures were all pointing to me, but they were pointing not just to me, but they were actually pointing through me to you. Because the point of the scriptures is not just that Christ would do these things, but then that the message of what Christ did would be proclaimed to all nations. So as the story of God moves to you, the story of Acts is how the story of God moves through you. The story of God comes to you in Jesus, and we get to experience the gospel and salvation. But then Jesus says it like this in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. You know what a witness is? You didn't do anything. I mean, put yourself in in court. A witness is not even the victim. A witness is not the perpetrator. Who's the witness? You just watched something happen. Right? You didn't do it. You didn't receive the action from me. You were just like, yeah, I saw that. So what does it mean to be a witness of what God's done in Christ? You can have a firsthand account of going, yeah, no, I see what God can do. No, I see the power of the gospel. I've seen it. And I've seen it because I've experienced it. That's the idea of this witness here. It's like, you're a witness of these things. So you ought to go and proclaim. So the story of God comes to you and the story of God moves through you. But there's one catch. And, and if you've read this passage, you've been looking at it, maybe you asked this question like I did when I got to verse 49. Why does he tell them to stay in the city? He says, you're going to be witnesses. You've got to proclaim these things to all nations. Remember how many of them are here? I mean, there's like less than 20 people in this room looking at Jesus. And then he just tasked them to tell this message to all nations. So if you're like me and I'm like, you know, maybe they were like us, then I'm going, one, two, three, four, five, 10, 12 of us. Okay, Judas has gone 11. All nations? Like all people? How do we get the gospel to all people? So the catch of the mission that he gives them, he says the story of God's gonna move through you and you're gonna go to all nations and tell them the story of God, that everything's been pointing to me. Now in me, you can have deliverance. Now you go tell everybody that. And he says, but wait, don't go yet. But I'm sure they were going, we gotta get started like now. Like we're already full grown adults. We don't have that much time. We've gotta go start getting the message out. If we're gonna get to all nations, we probably need to recruit some more workers and we probably need to start figuring out what are the strategic cities to go to first, that if we put a church here, it can go to the other places. And how are we gonna get this message out? And Jesus says, you're you're not. Actually, the mission I gave you is impossible. That's the catch of the book of Acts. The mission that Jesus gives his followers is impossible. So Jesus does not stop being the hero of the story at the end of the Gospels. When Jesus is resurrected, that's not the end for him. It's not like Jesus was the hero, he's resurrected, now he's gone. Now, hey, you guys, go figure out how to keep this thing going. Figure out how to keep the fire alive. Jesus remains the hero of the story even in the book of Acts. So if your Bible's like mine, my, my beginning of the book of Acts says something like Acts of the Apostles. And that's just such a horrible title. So that part of the Bible is not inspired by God, all right? Acts of the Apostles, the titles of the books aren't, okay, so it's not really the Acts of the Apostles, it's still the Acts of Jesus because if Acts tells us anything about humanity, about us, it's that we're prone to mess up, make mistakes, die, uh, get really scared when our lives are threatened and run away, fight with each other, lie, I mean, Acts is riddled with stories of humanity's error and our failures and our shortcomings. But then it's also riddled with these supernatural, 
unbelievable accounts of how God continues to move his mission forward in spite of all that humanity is not. If this were truly just the Acts of the Apostles, I don't know that we'd get much past Acts 1, 9, or 10 when Jesus raises up to heaven. I mean, I think it would have probably ended there. Because there's no other explanation for how the gospel keeps on going. I mean, as we'll see in the book of Acts, there's persecution. Lives are threatened to the point where people who were born and raised in one city have to disperse to other regions because their lives are so threatened and the church can't be that big. Then the, the chief persecutor, the one who was killing more than anyone, all of a sudden comes to know Christ, gets his life changed, enters the church, and everybody's a little bit freaked out. Like, you were just trying to kill me last week. Now you're in my church giving a testimony of how God saved you. I don't really know if I want to be here. Are you, like, trying to trick us? And then you're going to be like, ha, all the guards, come in. I got you all now in church. Like, Freaky things are happening in the book of Acts. The only explanation is that Jesus is moving the gospel forward. So what does this have to do with the ending of Luke? Jesus is telling his disciples at the end of Luke, wait, because I'm going to give you power. And if you don't have my power, you can't live on my mission. It takes my power to proclaim my gospel on my mission. So you wait until you get power. Because you're not going to do this thing in human wisdom. You're not going to do this thing with human strategy. You're not going to do this thing with human skills and abilities. It's going to take my power. And we're going to learn next week when we look at the beginning of Acts that the power Jesus sends is the power of the Holy Spirit to live inside of every believer and empower them and equip them to proclaim the gospel to all nations. So the story of God is all moving to Jesus. And the story of God in Jesus is moving to you to offer you the gift of the gospel. But it doesn't stop there. The story of God is going to move through you, just like it's going to move through these followers of Jesus. It's going to move through them to all nations. And you know how we know that that happened? Go look at a globe and look at where they were in Jerusalem. Turn that globe around. And you'll see us over there. You'll see Georgia, Marietta, other side, Right? So in some of the gospel accounts, he says, to the ends of the earth. Well, it's round, so what's the end? Well, maybe just go to the opposite side. And Well, the gospel reached us, right? We're from the Middle East, and the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome. And I think this story pretty well summarizes what God's doing in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is not about what humans are able to do on their own. So Paul, who gets saved in the middle of Acts, he, he gets pretty quickly that God's calling him to... He's like, I got to get to the ends. I got to get to the ends of the known world to proclaim the gospel. And for him, he's going, Rome. I got to get to Rome. And, and he even says in some other books and other places, he says, I'd love to get to Spain, but Rome. Let me get to Rome. So he's just trying to get to Rome, trying to get to Rome. And then it's ironic how God gets him there. Paul couldn't have got there on his own. The only way he got there was he got arrested. And he goes, I'm a Roman citizen, so I want to I have trial. Take me. Let's go. Let's do this. He's having trial after trial. They put him on a boat, shipwreck. I mean, it's unbelievable stories on how he gets to Rome. He doesn't even get there because he's trying to. He gets there because he's arrested. So then he gets to Rome, and you're, if you read the book of Acts, thinking this is about what humans can accomplish, and the end of Acts is heartbreaking for you. 
Because then you're going, Paul did it. What a great missionary. And he tried so hard. Oh, my goodness. Unbelievable. What a rags to riches story. Thought he was going to get to Rome. Got arrested. Thought his life was over. They bring him there. He accomplished this thing. He brought the gospel to Rome. But that's not how the story ends. He arrives in Rome. And just to highlight that God is working in 10 million ways that you'll never know, what does the Bible say? When Paul arrived in Rome, he was greeted by the brothers unnamed, unknown, unknown how the gospel got there, but it had got there before Paul. Here's the point. God's gonna move his gospel forward and he's gonna do it in ways you don't realize and he's gonna use people you don't know. But the point of Acts is not the Acts of the apostles, it's the Acts of Jesus on the throne. So the story of God's not ending when Jesus is resurrected. It's just getting started. So you you look at the graphic, it says the movement begins. The movement begins. The movement of what? The movement of the gospel through Jesus' followers to the nations. The whole story of God's been leading to this. Remember Abraham? All nations will be blessed in you. How's that gonna happen? Well, here we are in Acts the other side of the Bible, and we're about to read the story of how that happens. So my prayer as we're walking through the book of Acts is that we would get this wild idea that God wants to do in and through us just what he did in and through the people of Acts. That in spite of us and through us, he's gonna move the gospel from the Shalford family to the nations. He's gonna move it to the 200,000 people that live in a five-mile radius of right here where we sit. That he's gonna move the gospel through us to our neighbors. He's going to move the gospel through us to the nations, to Africa and Asia, where the church is really flourishing. I pray they ought to send some missionaries over here to encourage us. But God's going to use us to carry the gospel to people who've never heard it before. Why? It's not because we're smart enough or rich enough or have the right strategy. It's going to be because we sit and we wait just like the disciples did. And we say, you've got to fill us with your spirit, God, because we can't do it. You're the main character of the story now. You're the main character of my life. Are we willing to take a back seat so that God can be the main character in our story now? That's my prayer for all of us as we move through the book of Acts. So I'm gonna pray. Josiah's gonna come back up and sing for us. Father, thank you for the book of Luke and God, how we've seen the life of Jesus Uh, It's been amazing to see all that Jesus did and all that he was doing as he was moving to the cross. And then God, thank you for Jesus' death on the cross in our place. And thank you for his resurrection so that we could share in his new life. Now God, I, I pray that your story would become our story. That we would see the story of God, not just as a story out there for us to go learn about, but I pray that your story would, would become our story, God. I pray that we would be a witness to what you can do. And God, I pray that the mission of our church would not be built on what we're able to do or what we can dream up, but God, like Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, God, you're able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. God, we're asking that you would do that in our church family. So this morning, God, set us free from sin, set us free from shame and suffering, God, and all the things that want to control us. And I pray that we just find true freedom and true identity in Christ.